Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today, I'm going to have to say her name slowly, but it's Orly Rakatondrafara. I hope I said that. Yes. Okay. Okay. We got to pass that first hurdle. Uh, she's an assistant professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and we're going to Quick. talk about uh, plant viruses. Yes, a quick update. I'm, I got tenured, so now I'm an associate professor. Oh, congratulations. That's great. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Good. So tell me about your uh, research. Well, uh, as you mentioned, I work on the plant uh, viruses, and uh, one of uh, my great interests is about regulation of gene expression. This idea of how plant viruses, once they get inside the plant cell, how do they manage to make their proteins? And one thing to understand, and if that's why I'm very excited about this field, is that viruses have to take over, hijack the cellular machinery. So they have to really evolve unique strategy to make sure that they're able to grab the transition machinery and to make their protein. One visual slide that I normally use in class is uh, Nemo. We, have, we are in the sea, there's the sharks, all of this type of fishes, and everybody wants Nemo. And Nemo are... Uh, the translation factor and viruses are those tiny little animals floating around and next to the big gigantic shark of a cellular cellular mRNA. So there is a competition that happened. So viruses have to come up with uh, really unique ways to make sure that they're able to make their protein. So that is uh, my field yeah. of interest. What's different about plant viruses versus phages or you know human or animal viruses? Oh, that's a good question. So. Viruses in general, they have the same goal. The goal is to get inside the cell and then to make copies of themselves and then move on to the next cell and repeat it again. So the main difference I would say between plant viruses and phage and animal viruses, any type of other viruses that you can think about is how they're doing that. So for instance, the first obstacle, plant cells have a cell wall, the cellulose thick wall that is impenetrable for plant viruses. So there is no such an idea of uh, endocytosis, uh, merging in with a cell membrane that you normally see in uh, animal viruses. The only way that plant virus can get in is there is a wound or there is a, a vector that is delivering them inside uh, the cell. It's why the majority, I would say 75% of plant viruses are transmitted by insects. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So- but what about the root system, the root hairs? Do they have cell walls? Or what about the stomata on leaves? I mean, I would think there are some entry points, right? Or the nodules and the rhizosphere, the roots. There's right. bacteria in there, you know? Yes, this is really great. Wow, you really know your biology. And so, so viruses are completely different from bacteria and fungi. Bacteria and fungi are capable of using natural opening, as you mentioned, stomata and et cetera, to enter the cell. Uh, but something that you need to think about, even though it's a natural opening, there's still a big cell wall. So there must be a wound or something that pierces through that thick uh, cellulose uh, uh, like uh, membrane. So in that way, the virus can be delivered inside the cytoplasm. So something maybe to, to think about is viruses are obligate parasites, meaning that they need a living host to be able 
to multiply. And all of the machinery that they, they, it needs, it's inside the cytoplasm of a cell. So whatever you do, you need to deliver the virus inside the cytoplasm. So it's why viruses use a vector most of the time. And uh, the best vector for plant viruses are those uh, insects that have like a feeding tube, meaning that uh, they're able to pierce through of uh, the cell wall and get all the way down to the flow worm, and that's the best way for a plant virus to, to get delivered. But again, this is not my field. <laughs> well, one last question: What about ion channels? You know, that go do they go through the cell wall, and can viruses come in through that way as well? Ion channels are really great. So for plant, uh, the way that plant viruses are moving from from one cell to the next, this is we are already inside the, the living cell. That, so here we go, the virus enter, was delivered inside the cell. Now it needs to move from cell to cell. And it's where it's going to use the plasmodis matter, which are like microchannel, where like ion, nutrient, water is exchanged from one cell to the next. And viruses are able to manipulate those uh, microchannel to be able to move. They will do that in two ways. One way is they will destroy it. Literally, they create a, a tunnel, an additional tunnel with a, a movement protein to be able to uh, move along from one cell to the next. Or the second way, they, uh, they're able to enlarge it because those microchannels are like active channels, meaning that their size can increase and decrease. And so viruses uh, will encode specific proteins that are capable of increasing what we call the size exclusion limit of those channels, and then the virus will be able to pass through. So a typical method of infection is an insect will stab into the plant to feed and then as it's feeding, I guess, viruses will, it'll kind of, I guess, leave, you know, it, not all the material will be sucked in, but some of it will come out and then it'll contain viruses and that'll go into the cells that are blown open by the uh, proboscis or whatever is being punctured into the cells. Yes, exactly. So during the feeding, this idea of injecting and reject, regurgitating saliva, this is when uh, NISAD is capable of picking up and releasing uh, viruses. Another way that viruses are transmitted, and this is uh, one of the most common ways as well, is through wound. And you can easily wound a plant leaf just by touching it, because like by touching it, you, you may be injuring those tiny hair, and that is enough to create uh, an opening for the virus to get, to get in. So mechanical injury is also a way for viruses to be able to get inside a plant. So is there a difference between a virus that wants to enter the plant from the outside and one that is in like the, the xylem or phloem of the plant and now is inside but not inside cells? Okay, so that is really a great question. So by the way, just for you to know, the goal of the plant virus, once, once it gets inside the cell, would be to multiply, move cell to cell. This is what we call cell to cell movement, and then get into the vascular system. And then once in the vascular system, as you mentioned, uh, the phloem area, it will, it will be able to spread throughout the plant systemically. Then when it reaches uh, a new leaf, it will get back on the epidermal tissue and cover it completely. So... This is the goal of, of the virus, to be able to multiply and invade the entire plant. However, once this plant is completely invaded, the next step of a plant virus is to move to another plant. And so that's where uh, a vector is important. So viruses have to find a way to make this infected plant attractive for insects to come in. And then the insect will come, feed off of this plant, and then they'll go and uh, move to the next plant. And it's how they're able to spread the virus throughout the entire field. Yeah, that's incredibly similar to how parasites do it. 
they have to rely on this, you know, infected by biting insects and then, well, partially, and then a biting insect comes back and bites an infected person and then it goes back into that insect. So sounds like with plants, that's like a very similar vector. Uh, yes, the only difference between uh, plants and human or animals is that plants are sessiles. They cannot move. They are stuck. So the only way for a virus to, to spread is really relying on a vector to spread them all around the, the entire field. Yeah, but wouldn't there be viruses that hitch a ride on pollen and on the fruits? You know, maybe some accumulate in the fruits of a plant. Yes, this is a good point. So, but it's less than 6% of plant viruses which are transmitted by seed, pollen, but the majority are really transmitted for, for vector. But again, yes, some viruses that can be spread for, uh, for pollen and seeds and et cetera. Yeah, and I, th- I thought plants too give off volatile chemicals as well. I know that's not you know, necessarily a virus, but I wonder if they've co-opted that mechanism too. You know, they can be volatilized from a plant directly. Volatilized? Huh. That is interesting. But again, you need to think about it. Let's imagine. Let's imagine. It's a theoretical scenario. If a plant managed to volatilize a virus, it doesn't matter where that virus lands. It needs to find a way to get inside the next plant. Right. That's why it needs a wound or another vector. So it's not a preferred mechanism of a virus, you know, just to, to float around in the air and hoping to attach somewhere because even though it, it finds a host, but if there is nothing that will manage to help it to get inside the, the plant, it's going to be a failure infection. And I guess most viruses come in through the leaf canopy and not through the roots because insects have more asp- access to the leaves or not necessarily. Yeah, this is a really great point, and, uh, and you're correct. So there are some viruses that are transmitted by nematodes, transmitted by fungi, and those are soil-borne pathogens. So some of them will get through the root system, as you mentioned, but the majority are through, from the above part of the plant and on the leaves. It's how viruses normally get in. You know, I've heard some plants, let's say uh, ants are eating them, they'll put out a chemical that will attract, let's say, a predator of the ants, or it might be some other creature doing it, but they're really sophisticated, it seems like, in their chemical signaling. Has there ever been a viral-caused behavior or, you know, like a virus piggybacks on that? And let's say, I don't know, there's a biting insect that would spread the virus and the plant's being attacked by, again, ants. And the plant would normally signal, again, for this biting insect to come and get rid of the ants. And when there's a virus in the plant that's upregulated or that happens when it didn't happen before, does the behavior ever get that sophisticated? So that the virus can can move along to the next, I guess I'll call it intermediate host, you know, because it, it kind of is. This is a very intricate interaction. And so viruses, by the way, plant viruses, and there have been some studies where they're able to show that plant viruses are able to manipulate the plant defense response so that it will stop producing some volatile. So the insect, they will favor the insect to land on the on the plant so the virus can be transmitted. So viruses are able to manipulate uh, uh, the plant. The example that you're talking about, the uh, three-way interaction, there are some cases where I think one of the well-described cases is the case of those plants in the Yellowstone that uh, are shown to be resistant to drought. And they figure out that those plants have been colonized by fungi. 
and somehow for, uh, the presence of those fungi are confirmed with drug resistance. But when they dig a little bit further, it turned out that the fungi has to be infected by this uh, virus, this microvirus, and uh, this, the presence of this virus inside the fungus confers this drought resistant to the plant. The paper was in science and they call it like a three-way interaction or threesome interaction. Wow. And the coolest one, and that was recently covered in the New York Times magazine, and I had the chance to comment on it, was this microvirus, viruses of, fun, uh, of fungi, that is infecting Sclerotinia sclerotia, which is a white mold, a big pathogen in soybean production and over 100, 400 uh, different species. But anyway, what they found in the paper was that when the, the fungus is, was infected by this virus, not only it reduces the growth of the fungus. The fungus was not able to, to induce a lesion on the plant, but also they mentioned that how the virus somehow tamed the fungus into this endophyte. So kind of like the fungus went from a necrotrophic behavior, a killer behavior, chewing, killing, destroying the plant into this endophyte beneficial, beneficial micro for the plant. And they observed an increase in plant growth and as well as uh, increase in the plant defense response against over pathogen. So that is a few examples that we're observing in, uh, in the plant world on how viruses are able to manipulate uh, their host yeah, and giving new uh, behavior. Because plant viruses really need insects to spread for the large part, are they, do they tend to be more pathogenic or more commensal so they keep the plants alive so they can be fed upon by insects. Is there any like, you know, propensity among plant viruses? Well, this is really a great question. And I have to say, this is not my field of expertise. So I could only uh, speculate upon it. One thing that, okay. we, that the virus need to think about is the fitness of, of a plant. Somehow I could imagine that there must be some evolution, evolution of the virulence of a virus so that it doesn't kill the plant right away because you need to make sure that the plant is still attractive for the insects to land on it and feed on it. So there must be a balance. But what exactly is controlling, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about. All right, well, I've been, I've been asking you all my questions, but let's, let's <laughs> focus in on your research. I'm sorry. So let, let's restate it. So what, what is your research about specifically? I love that. We completely diverted all the way to virus transmission, et cetera, which is way far beyond my expertise. So... We are back into the cell, and my expertise is, uh, is on the regulation of uh, gene expression, how viruses are able to make sure that uh, they are able to uh, produce their protein once they are inside uh, the cell. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, where, what are some of the major targets once they get inside the cell? Do they, you know, are there viruses that target the chloroplasts? Like what, what areas do they tend to target? So I'm working on translation. So the target would be the ribosomes. Those are the machinery that the plants are using to be able to make their own protein. So remember, if you go back to the central dogma, you have in the nucleus, you have the DNA. The DNA has to be transcribed into RNA, and the RNA will take all of the genetic information from the DNA and to produce a, a protein. And the protein will confer the traits of a plant, tall, um, short, uh, color, whatever you can think about for its own physiology uh, and all development. So what the majority of plant viruses are RNA virus. So one way to think about it is that 
the virus will deliver one genomic material, one RNA. And this RNA will compete with the million mRNA that are floating inside the cytoplasm for the same machinery, the ribosome. So something that is crucial in a translation, gene regulation, is that the translational fate of any mRNA is determined by its ability to recruit those translation machinery. So here we go, the virus has to compete against cellular mRNA. So how do they do that? And this is really an exciting field. I've been working on that since uh, I was a PhD student uh, and I continue on that as a postdoc and now in my lab, is that it turned out that viruses come up with very unique strategies. What, what, what is those strategies? So strategy are, they're not go- going to try to copy what the cell mRNA will do to recruit the, those ribosome. They're going to find alternative ways. So. Just as a quick review about molecular biology, if you don't mind, is that uh, cellular mRNAs, no matter if it's an insect, human, plant, uh, you can think about, all of them has to have a two element on the mRNA to be able to recruit the translation machinery. This is the cap and a polyethyl present in the 5' end and the 3' end of the mRNA. Those two elements, the way that they work is that they're able to recruit one by one like, a, uh, I would say, like a puzzle, they recruit one by one the translation factor, the initiation tra- translation factor, and then those factors, once they are assembled on the mRNA, they recruit the ribosome. It's a signal for the ribosome to be able to recognize which mRNA it needs to translate. Okay. So in the case of plant uh, viruses, so plant viruses have, they could acquire the cap and the polyethyl. They can do that in different ways. If they are a DNA virus, they can do that by getting inside the nucleus and being transcribed by the host machinery to make an mRNA, and then it will add automatically of a cap and a polyethyl. Some viruses are able to encode for their own capping machinery. So they will make a pro- synthesize a protein that will add that, uh, the cap at the fapam end of the mRNA. Some other plant viruses, similar to the influenza viruses, they do what we call cap snatching. Literally, they steal the cap from the host mRNA. They have an enzyme that is capable of cutting it off from the cellular mRNA and attach it to their own. So then again, now the virus has a cap. But the majority of plant RNA viruses do not have a cap, and some of them do not have a polyethyl. So what do they do? But we know that like those RNA are pathogenic because they are, most of the RNA viruses are the most destructive, economically important viruses in agriculture. So how do they manage then to translate if they don't have this cap? Well, it turns out that they use a sequence motif within their uh, genome that will mimic the function of a cap. So kind of somehow they have a, a structure, a motif, which have a high affinity to the translation factor then that ribosome doesn't know. He just see, oh, here we go. An mRNA, which has all of the translation initiation factor. Okay, this is the signal for me to translate this mRNA. So then here we go. This is how viruses are able uh, to get their protein translated. So my lab has been really working on what are exactly those uh, motifs that viruses are using to be able to, to translate. And uh, this field is uh, not well studied in uh, plant viruses. The majority of the big discovery has been done in animal viruses. Is it important that they're able to achieve this replication at all, this translation? Or is it more important that not only do they do that, but they seem to step in front of the line and preferentially get their material translated more than 
what the cell would normally do for its own metabolic processes. Yeah, that's a great point. And just the term that you say, like to step, to manage, to go in front, to be able to be translated more than cellular mRNA, that requires some strategy. And so that's what uh, it's exciting. And it's, this is what I've been working on. And uh, I have to admit, I love viruses. So I tend to personalize them, meaning that I tend to give them some personality. So I could really imagine the virus strategizing. I use the term that viruses hijacking as if they have this intention to go ahead and, you know, take over the cell for their own good. One thing, one of my theory is that those type of mechanism may already exist in the, in the cell. However, viruses picked up the same mechanism, but learn how to do it better. So it's why it's worth for me to investigate how they're doing that. Well, question. So since a lot of these viruses are mechanically injected and they bypass the cell wall, what do their capsids or their nuclear envelopes look like? And what happens to that material inside the cell? Is it abandoned? Is it disassembled and used somehow? Or is the whole like virion and somewhat virion form preserved inside the cell? Correct. No, once the virus gets inside the cell, uh, it has to disassemble. The, the capsid, the, the coat has to be disassembled for the genome to be able to be released inside the genome. And then, so again, this is RNA virus. So what is going to happen? The first thing that is going to happen to that RNA, once it gets in, inside the cell, is going to be translation, making the protein that are needed for the virus to make copies of themselves for the virus to be able to self-assemble and for the virus uh, to be able to move to the next cell and, and start again a cycle of infection. Well, what's, uh, what kind of viral loads do plant cells get? I would think they might get incredibly high viral loads. And then, you know, what if the different virions coordinate and act as like a swarm, in, you know, organism inside the cell? I mean, they would be, they're competing with the cell, first of all, but then they may be also competing with themselves. <laughs> Yeah, this is really a great question. So supposedly, from one study, that within a, a round of uh, a replication within one cell, the virus will be able to make a 200 to 1,000 virions ready to move to the next cell. So are they able to compete with one another? You know, if I have like a little bit of saliva from some bug, you know, that breaks into one of my plant cells, I mean, the nucleotide sequence of all the virions probably won't be the exact same because it's a wild type virus. There's probably like quasi species. And so that would mean like, if you look at it from that perspective, some of the quasi species may have, you know, sequences that allow them to even better, you know, get in front of the, the translation machinery than others. So I, there may be coordination there. There may be even competition amongst the quasi species. I don't know. I mean, depending on how many are in there. This is really a great question. Something that I know is that let's imagine uh, you have a virus which is able, uh, is going to make its own protein and those protein that it's producing is only going to be able to recognize the same copy of a viral genome that they come from. There, there is no competition in a way that all this protein that this virus uh, used could be used by another genome that just came in. So it seems that there's this limitation. And also some work has been done. Uh, they refer that as a super exclusion, meaning that if one cell is infected by one virus, it's going to block the entry of another one uh, inside that particular cell. So that, that is like initial work. Some work has been done and we have been able to observe that in, uh, in plants. So this lab, what they did is uh, they labeled two viruses 
and uh, they notice that those two viruses will not be in the same cell. They can be in adjacent cell, but they won't be in the same cell, suggesting uh, what they refer to as a super exclu- uh, exclusion, that once a virus takes over this particular cell, then nobody else can enter and take it over. Right, but if I'm like the if I'm if I'm a plant virus, I'll just call myself like the ABC virus. Mm-hmm. When I enter into a plant cell, there's going to be not just let's say I have a thousand base pairs. You know, the other viruses, especially the RNA viruses, I would think would have differences in their sequence, so they might have different abilities. We'd all still be the ABC virus because we're ninety nine percent the same, mm-hmm. but some of us would have different sequences. So I'm not even talking about a totally different virus, but within the ABC virus variants. There would be differences of ability to co-opt the cellular machinery, and you know maybe the virions we package would look different. So there may be some competition there. There may mm-hmm. be like some survival of the fittest type thing. And if you think like you know a bug injects it into me, and then the virions multiply, and they're in my environment, and they you know whatever one wins, or they they produce different virions. Now another bug comes, and off it goes to another plant, another and another. You know if if a virus has been passaged through a hundred plants over a series of years, and it's a swarm organism. I mean, the variants may tend to look very different, and they've been shaped by all these prior prior infections. And I just wonder what that population dynamic would look like if anyone's ever looked at that. I love all of your scenario. And by the way, that experiment of pathogen is a typical experiment that we use in plant virology to look at evolution of a viral population with this idea that what people normally do, they take a plant that shows slight where the virus is not able to multiply that much. But then you do a series of passagings, kind of like you're forcing the virus to get it in and replicate. And you take it and put it again uh, on another similar plant. And you do that uh, through a series of 10, 30 passages. And they look at the virus sequence at the end of it, as well as the phenotype observed in the last transfer passage. And they notice that by the end of several passages, viruses are able to infect the plant uh, entirely and they're even able to kill the, the plant. And then they look at sequencing and they're able to figure out what were the adaptation, what were the mutation that were acquired during the series of replication that confer a uh, better fitness for the virus. And it's how it changes indeed the population into more adapted to that particular plant. And this, this is really cool, cool evolutionary um, data. Mm. Yeah, I know this is, again, I know this is not your area, but just one quick question. What, what do you call the virologists that are studying the plant, vi- the plant viruses once they're in the, again, I'm going to call it intermediate host, in the particular bug that has bitten them and that then transmits it on? Like, do the viruses tend to make that bug sick? Probably not. Are they just in a dormant stage until they're passed on to the next plant? And, you know, is there a subset of virologists, plant virologists that study the viruses in that instance? Yes, and this is a really big field. So just to summarize, there are three ways that viruses are able to interact with their vector. One, it's called non-persistent manner, meaning that they're literally using the insect as a, as a Uber. They are picked up and they are released right away. And uh, in those cases, viruses are just found on the stylet, on the feeding tube of, uh, of those insects. Okay, it's still a specific interaction because the virus has to have a specific protein to be able to attach to the, to the stylet. However, that interaction will last within a few seconds to a few minutes. And the second uh, way is what they refer to as uh, uh, circulative, no persistence. Those are the type of viruses 
And the majority of them are the viruses that are phloem limited, meaning that they're stuck in the phloem of the plant and they acquire uh, during the feeding of insect uh, on the phloem. And during injection, injection by the insect, those viruses will transit uh, throughout the body, throughout, uh, not the body, the gut of, of insect. They'll go from the feeding tube down to the mid gut, in gut, and from there, they go to the MLF, which is the blood type of system of insect, back to the salivary gland. And when the insect salivates again, it's how it is injected. But in this particular type of transmission, the virus just circulates, meaning that it just goes through the body, the inside of the insect, but it's not multiplying or anything. So there is not an increase of viral load. And you have a third type of transmission, which is called circulative and persistent, those are the ones that not only they circulate within the body of the insect, but they're also they're able to get on in the muscle system, the nervous system, and they're going to, able to be able to multiply. And those type of transmission, in this case, the, the insect will be, will be able to transmit the virus for the entire uh, lifetime. And in this case, you can already imagine that the load of viruses uh, that are transmitted by the insect uh, is a lot, but there's some limitation. Limitation how? Well, if you just say hitchhike on the Uber, those are the type of viruses that can be released really quick, within seconds, tick, 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 when the, the insect just feed on and off, and then here we go, you have viruses that are transmitted within minutes. In the case of viruses that need to multiply inside the body of the insect, transmission by that insect doesn't happen right away. So there is a delay. This delay can take like several hours to days, before, like, here we go, the virus get back on, on within the salivary gland and being uh, rejected by, inject, rejected, regurgitated by the mm. insect inside the gotcha. gland. And also something to think about also, uh, maybe this is more like applied plant disease management strategy. If you have a virus that is just picked up and dropped off really quick, then farmers cannot use uh, insecticide to control those. Why? It's because by the time you come in with your insecticide and start to spray the field, the, the insect already uh, flew away, and then here we go, it already spread the virus, it's too late. However, you can use the efficiently uh, insecticide if you're dealing with insects that, that are capable of acquiring viruses that are circulating in their body, and then by the time that the, you come in with the insecticide, you can kill uh, the insect uh, because you don't have time yet to, to release uh, the virus load. Okay, I got you. Going, going back inside the cell, at the time of translation, do plant viruses tend to package the, uh, the progeny into, into their capsids and then like amass them and wait to burst out of the cell or wait to be you know, sucked up by another bug? Or do they, do they translate and you get a whole bunch of like, you know, viral RNA sitting there and then it's packaged at a later point? Any insights there? I love your term, like burst out. Again, such type of uh, event does not happen in plant cell because of a cell wall. So there is no such a such an explosion of virus coming out as we see in, in human animation of uh, plant viruses, like those budding in and out of uh, uh, virion. In the case of uh, plant viruses, again, the goal of the virus will be to, to spread and uh, infect the entire plant. In, Infecting only one cell is not uh, an efficient way. It's not a successful infection. You have to be able to, be, to spread. So then what is going to happen once the, the virus's RNA got translated, it's self-assembled, then it's going to move from cell to cell. 
And you can imagine just uh, that one cell in a plant cell is surrounded by several other cells around it. And as I mentioned, viruses use the plasmosis matter, those microchannels. And they are about, supposedly depending on the state of the cell, about uh, uh, 1,000 to 10,000 microchannels within one single cell uh, like uh, to be able to connect with the neighboring cell. So you can imagine viruses are able to spread. And here we go, they get into the vascular system and they go. So when do they get picked up uh, by insect? Remember, again, insects have different behaviors. The first behavior is what we call probing, meaning that the insect would just uh, land and taste. And because insects are not able to recognize a host while flying, they have to land and taste it. If they don't like it, then they move on to the next one until they found a, a preferred host. And only then they were going to feed. So meaning that they're going to inject the entire uh, feeding tube all the way down to the phloem. So why is it even relevant? So when I mentioned that uh, viruses are able to have to multiply and then they move from cell to cell, you can imagine that the spreading of the virus is happening on the epidermal uh, layer of a, of a leaf. So this is the top layer of the leaf. So if the virus is there, then in that case, uh, an, an insect that is just coming to probe and poke will be able to rapidly pick up a virus and go. But once the virus spread gets inside the vascular system in the phloem, then now you need an insect that likes, likes that the plant and will decide to stay and feed all the way down to the phloem. And it's only then that the virus will be acquired. So going back earlier, when, you know, if I imagine an insect poking its way into the plant and tasting or drinking, it would damage the cell walls, allowing the virus to get in. But now if the virus is in a cell with a damaged wall, I don't think that cell would live very long. Or does it heal itself and seal itself back up with the virus inside? Oh, Otherwise, is... the contents would spill out. Yeah? Yes, and you're correct. And uh, this is really a great, great understanding, by the way, that you have about the uh, plant and infection. So you're correct. If you can imagine, imagine that if a vascular system gets punctured, if the plant loses uh, this trigger pressure, it will collapse. So just an idea that I'm telling my student is the only reason why a leek or a green onion is straight is because it has trigger pressure that allows this plant to stay straight. So once you poke it, this is, you can imagine that the plant will collapse. So it turned out that plants have ways to seal any wounds, meaning that they're able to respond rapidly if a vascular tissue has a damage. So indeed, you can imagine when an insect comes in, make a wound, then the first reaction of the plant will be to seal that wound. And uh, we have different proteins that come in, and, but you can imagine that this is not good for the, for the, for the insect. Because if a plant successfully seals everything, then how will the insect feed? So it turned out something which is amazing, is that when an insect starts feeding, so within their saliva, they have some molecules that are able to block this uh, response of the plant to uh, seal the wound. And also they are producing some, a certain type of gel that will fix, that will seal like uh, the opening around the feeding tube of, uh, of the insect. So then one, the insect uh, is stable for, for feeding, but as well as there is no more leakage. So then in this case, the plant is not going to try to destroy, seal up that entire wounded cell. So it's why it's a, a very efficient interaction between the insect and the plant. Okay. 
and with your research, what do you hope to figure out and what, what will be actionable about, about that? You know, what do you want to figure out? What will you do with it? Oh, yeah. So one of the projects that I, I've been working on, we found this uh, plant virus uh, that has characteristic of an animal virus in the way that they're able to produce a protein. And uh, we're able to, to patent that sequence. And the reason why is because this element that this virus has is so potent that like the level of translation, the level of protein that you get, it's much higher than if you have a traditional cap element. So meaning that uh, we could theoretically use this plant virus to express the protein industrially in plants. So I'm sure that you've seen in the news that they've been using tobacco to produce the COVID vaccine. So we could theoretically imagine using the sequence that could boost that uh, production could be of a great interest. So one of the future goals that I'm into is, so I mentioned to you, I'm working on this plant virus. It's called triticum mosaic virus. It's a virus of wheat. It does not look like any known plant viruses for its mechanism of translation, but it looked like an animal virus. However, if you take that sequence and put it in a, cell, a, a human cell or animal cell, it doesn't work. So meaning that there must be some restriction or specificity. And uh, this is what I'm really interested in. How does uh, like an animal virus pick up animal sequence, and uh, even further, are there some ancestral evolution? Meaning, could it be possible that plant and animal viruses are coming from the same similar ancestor in the way that uh, they produce their protein, and next they divert and uh, adapt it to one particular host and make it so efficient? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Aurelie, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Well, they can go to the website of uh, our department, uh, UW Medicine. They can uh, Google my work uh, or my name, Rakuton Rafara, and uh, go on PubMed if they want to uh, read more literature. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And I know there's tons more to talk about, but uh, we got a good you know, a good taste of the juices of plant viruses here and what they're about. So thank you for coming. Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Really my great pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.